good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, I mean a really interesting edition tonight, of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when tonight we're going to probe the intentions of aliens, or ETs, or both. Because, well, we'll, we'll, when we get into the actual conversation, we'll get some definitions straight. We have passed an extraordinary moment in global history, and I'll get to that in a minute, but I want to I, I want to report tonight, if you go, if, if, if you're new to the program, and I did uh, Coast with George on Tuesday, so I imagine a number of you <clears throat> kind of wandered over to see, what the heck is he up to? Well, tonight you're going to hear. We are up to a lot, a lot, and we're making really demonstrable, measurable progress. So all of that to unfold in the next uh, three or so hours. I want to start tonight by directing everyone to, to tonight's banner. Uh, this is for, of course, uh, Saturday night, December 22nd, 23rd, 23rd, yes, 23rd. Go to tonight's banner, which says the Alien Disclosure Deception. Our guest tonight is uh, Charles Upton, a very interesting writer and philosopher and citizen scientist, and uh, you will meet him very shortly. But he's written this book. And it's so in line with our own research that I wanted to make sure that when we uh, had what happened uh, last week happen, we kind of hit the ground running even prior to the new year. Just believe me, 2024 is going to be one of those where, as Betty Davis said, fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy flight. So... Um, let me start, click on that banner where it says Aislinn Disclosure with that eerie, eerie gaze. Click on that. That takes you to our guest page. And right under the guest page, you'll see fast links to items. My name and Charles. Click on my name. That takes you to my section uh, of radio with pictures. Um, item number one. This now, at this season, this is so crucially important because remember in the physics apropos of uh, art bell and george's uh, george nori's empirical experiments in consciousness you know influencing we'll use that term consciousness influencing there have been some stunning notable successes on the idea that everybody focuses on a good outcome to something and lo and behold the good outcome outcomes because of people's focused consciousness. Well, there is a physics behind this. This is the hyperdimensional, you know, model. And empirically, I know I was a beneficiary of one of Art's experiments because the night that uh, he learned I'd had the heart attack, he got all millions of his listeners, really, all focusing on making Richard well again. And here I am, not a twinge. Now, Robin took over after the first hyperdimensional miracle of focused consciousness kind of waned. Because it's one of those things where it, if you don't keep focusing attention, the energy goes somewhere else. It wanders. It, you know, dissipates. So you could not expect people more than, you know, a few weeks to focus on, you know, keep Oakland alive. And when they finished, Robin took over. I mean, it was seamless and... uh it's because of her that I am here tonight, a twinge. So um, what we're looking at is the potential that that headline, Putin privately signals interest in ceasefire in Ukraine, can become real, as the Catholics would say, can become manifest if enough people focus on making Putin continue and approach a ceasefire with Ukraine and then it it spreads and it goes from Israel to Gaza and good God peace could break out and it's so overdue now as this audience well knows my interest going back decades in this phenomenon 
the so-called UFO phenomenon. And its corollary of discipline, which I guess we, in, we invented, exoarchaeology, looking at ruins, looking at the remains of this extraordinary series of ancient, incredibly sophisticated high-tech civilizations which occupied this entire solar system, again, according to empirical evidence from NASA, from the Russians, from the Chinese, from the Japanese, a huge bunch of folks, including now the new player on the block, India. India is landing at the South Pole of the Moon, well, within 19.5 hyperdimensional degrees. Hint, hint, Emily Dickinson, anyone? Reveals stunning stuff about the landing site. Anyway, this is all kind of like a prelude to why am I having someone on tonight, Charles Upton, who, as you'll hear momentarily, has such a background so distant from my approach to these subject matters because, as I said a moment ago, we have crossed a Rubicon, which takes me to item number two. A week or so ago, the House and the Senate passed the current NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, to which was attached a uh, an, an, an amendment called the Schumer Amendment, proposed by the um, uh, majority leader in the Senate. Um, and it included disclosure dates and legal language pertaining to enforcement thereof. The disclosure, both in private industry and in government, of any and all UFO, UAP, ET, alien technology. Now, it went through a rather remarkable political process, and Steve Bassett, who, by the way, is going to join us, uh, I think, for about five or ten minutes uh, in a few minutes in the first part of the show, because he did something which nobody else has done yet, and I want him to report firsthand uh, what he found when he was doing it. It's all very mysterious. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. Got to have some secrets, even from Emily. So um, the, the uh, milestone that was passed like a week ago is the House and Senate agreed in conference to submit to the president for signature the, ninth, the 2025 National Defense Authorization Act with the Schumer Amendment, but the Schumer Amendment, by the time it reached reaches the president, uh, has been, in, in the eyes of a lot of observers and, and commentators, eviscerated. It really is just a pale shadow. It's not really what Schumer wanted to do. There's no enforcement. There's no deadlines. The, the ultimate arbiter of who gets what in the American society of ancient UFO technology is left up to the various governmental departments who've got, you know, bits and pieces and the corporations like Lockheed, who got the contracts to begin analyzing this stuff decades ago and are sitting on proprietary rights. In other words, it's all locked up, and the current bill does nothing really to now legally unlock it. God, I hope I'm doing this right. You know, this is complex. This is, you know, remember they, they used to say never um, see behind the scenes when sausage is made or legislation. Because legislation is messy. You know, the very politic of politics is compromise. Everybody doesn't get everything they want. So what did we get and what did we not get? We got, well, I'll get to that more stress in a moment. We got a declaration that there is stuff to be dispersed. There's UFO technologies to be revealed. And then we didn't get access to it in any meaningful sense other than, well, it's a nice day, it's the, okay, let's let them have this. In other words, it's completely up to the people that are keeping the secrets to stop keeping the secrets. So that's not really the breakthrough. The breakthrough, which is why I'm doing this show tonight with Charles Upton, is because by very act of Congress, ufology, E.T. archaeology, E.T. psychology, E.T. geopolitics, um, 
or exopolitics is the term that I think I uh, bequeathed to uh, some people many years ago, when UFOs was just like a dirty word. Now, of course, it's been redeemed. Why? Because credible people are reporting incredible things on the record as part of a government infrastructure and a congressional campaign to make it all public and therefore real. The Rubicon that we are sitting a week ago, UFOs were something interesting that some people preoccupied their time with and, you know, enormous rumors, Twitterverse, uh, Truth Social, Fox, all of them. And tonight, we live in a realm where the Congress has declared by congressional authorization and the president is about to sign as part of the bill process of turning congressional wishes into law that UFOs, ETs, secret, extraordinarily advanced hyperdimensional technologies are real. It's all real. We've been right all along. Everyone who's listening who has been trying to get someone else to listen and tugging and pulling and, you know, but come on, it, it, we, we're in a new era. Yes, we are. It is all declared by legal congressional fiat. Real. Because you don't agree to keep hiding something if it's not of value. By, by declaring that it's property and it belongs to the corporations that have been back engineered, or declaring that it's, you know, government property and and therefore falls under national security precepts, what could possibly affect national security about UFO technology? Oh, come on. It's the whole ball game. Remember, as I said on Coast on Tuesday night to George's vast audience, well, he's compared to ours, but I believe in quality, not quantity. I said to him, look, this hyperdimensional torsion field engine, the space drive they're about to uh, test upstairs, is, is it, it's, you know, AD and BC. We will be in AD if it works when they turn it on. Well, we have been in touch. I'm not going to mention the details because those things, if, if you parade them in public, they those conduits tend to go away. But someone who is a very important person relating to this show, was able to reach out and directly get in touch with the head of the company in South Dakota, IVO Systems, who had put this extraordinary technological paradigm-shattering breakthrough into Earth orbit where it orbits every 90 minutes tonight. And they are about to turn it on. And if it works, then, as I said to George in the audience, everything changes. Everything. And think of it this way. The biggest come on for releasing UFO technologies has been for decades, how do they power their warp engines? How do they get from distant stars to here? And obviously the speed of light is, is minor inconvenience. The secret of that technology gives human beings not only the galaxy, but it gives them access to all kinds of other higher-level stuff. And again, we're not talking about our research, which is, which is separate. I'm talking about mainstream UFO mythology, which is that if you can figure out how they work, you get space drives that can take you to infinity. You get infinite energy, which means you don't have to, you know, destroy the planet or you know, produce super greedy corporate, you know, you know what, that will, you know, pilfer every pocket that they can in the general public in on behalf of money and power and greed. Those things go away. The planet gets saved. The democratization of individuals is enhanced when we're not beholden to someone else who can turn off the power. And that's only the opening gambit. If you really do have access to technologies from an extraordinarily sophisticated super ET civilization, either because they bring it and they've crashed, I mean, does that make any sense? Come on, come on. These are gifts. 
and they allowed us time to back. They want us to reveal this stuff because it will, A, save the planet, and B, it could in so many ways stop what's going on tonight in Gaza and Ukraine. It could unite the human spirit, which is very, very, very broken, by giving us something outside of ourselves to compare ourselves with and just maybe to live up to. Then there's another side. So I'm going to get to that when I introduce uh, uh, my main guest tonight. But first, I, 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 I want to skip over item number three, go to number four. As I said uh, last week with Stephen when we did the show on Saturday, and I said again to George on Tuesday, there is a current exhibit at the Smithsonian. It's in the, um, it's in the Museum of Natural History on the second floor in among something devoted to meteorites, I understand. And with great fanfare, less than uh, about, about a month and a week after the um, OSIRIS-REx spacecraft had returned samples of the asteroid to the Earth, soft landing them in Utah, you know, taking them by plane to Houston, putting them in a special lab, um, opening the canisters, which are kind of built like shells, and they've been able to get into the first level, and the second level, the interior, they can't get into because of the want of a screwdriver. I kid you not, that is currently what's going on with the samples from Bennu. And yet, they were able to get a few specks out of the uh, first level containment and get them over to the Smithsonian and open an entire exhibit. And behind a magnifying glass and a light, they've got a little speck of a sample. It's probably about the size of a grain of rice. And uh, Stephen will tell you more in a moment. It turns out on the official Smithsonian photography, when we looked at it, it looked like an ancient piece of of very tiny machinery. So I had um, Andrew Curry, who's one of our resident artists, incredibly talented folks, do a side-by-side -side comparison, which is there as my item number five. And Stephen, valiant person that he is, after doing you know the show late East Coast time on Saturday, he got up on Sunday morning and he went to the Smithsonian to try to find, and this is what happened. Mr. Bassett, you're on the air, and someone is calling. I don't know why. Okay. Okay, guys. Yeah, I had the microphone set on the wrong thing. I'm going to Skype settings. Say again? Skype. Uh, I, I already okay, have. I can hear you now, Steve. Yeah, I, I was, my setting was correct on my computer, but not on a Skype setting. Okay. Can, ever, can everybody hear me? Hello? Can everybody I'm hear me? I'm Richard. Can everybody hear me? Please. Hello? Hello, hello? Richard, you're muted on Skype. No, I'm not. Mute your oh, Skype. Oh, well, we how the hell? How? Hang on. Hang on. There we are. Richard. Yes, yes. All right. I've got, got Thank it. You. Got it. Got it. Okay. Sorry, folks. Uh, I'm not quite sure what happened there because sometimes these computers just want to do things all by their lonesome. So, um, Stephen, are you with us? Yes, I am. Excellent, excellent. Okay, so um, following gentle prodding, you got up at the crack of dawn on Sunday and went over to... What did you find at the Smithsonian? Very busy. It's the first time I've been at the Smithsonian Institute of National History. Um, went to the second floor geology exhibit, which is huge. It's got thousands of things in there. And I looked, looked, <laughs> I had a fit finding this very tiny display. They did have, as you walked in, a film running uh, in a, one of those little booths about Bennu. But there was no indication of where the exhibit was. Finally, I tracked it down. It was right inside the door on the left. 
very small in a case with a couple of other exhibits. And it's not impressive. The, 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 the piece is incredibly small. It sits in the bottom of a sort of like a microscope. Because uh, there's no way they could display it really outside of that. And so you'd look down and you could see that there's something down in the bottom. I guess Microsoft Center. There's also a light there. And that's it. Um, there's really nothing you can see beyond that uh, without taking it out of the case and probably bringing that micro microscope, whatever setup that is, into play. So very low key. Well, it sounds almost like it's no key. I mean, they make this big deal of it. Uh, uh, the administrator opens it together with the high mucky mucks of the museum, and you know, there's the rocket and the spacecraft models, and then you got this thing, and then there's this photograph on the uh, on the web, which is huge, and you say you can't even see it. It's it's like a little speck of dark stuff. The tiny, the pieces. Oh God, it's. it's I doubt it's a sixteenth of an inch across. It might even be a thirty-second of an inch. It's tiny, so it has to be viewed. And what you're saying is they're taking a photograph of it through a microscope, uh, but the actual piece is a fleck. And now you would think. I mean, I started out in muse museology, <clears throat> you know, preparing exhibits for the public in museums. And what you would do, even back then in the dark ages in the '60s, you'd have a closed-circuit thing called a television camera. And you'd have that focused with a prism or a mirror so you could look at it with your eye, but the camera could also see it. And then you'd have a big screen next to the exhibit so people could see it filling the screen. I have to say, I did not sit through the entire Bennu um, film there. Okay. Uh, again, it was about Bennu. At some point in there, they might have shown this thing, but I mean, it wouldn't have been much different than what you, you have. Uh, well, the different, well, yeah, because again, see, I wanted eyeballs, you know, Marco and eyeballs not bought and owned by NASA who could look at this thing and say, oh my God, look at that. With their own eyeballs looking down through what I thought would give us something, you know, comparable to the photograph. Again, this is, they're, they're not making a big deal out of this. This is a, if if I have to assume they have take, brought back uh, material from... Unless they uh, changed it. Remember, if you look at my item number four, that is the photograph wide angle of the microscope light combo, and you can see that the object is much bigger than a fleck of sugar. I mean, look at it there. Um, I don't I don't actually have that up right now. Okay. Go to it. Okay. Uh, it... Well, it's bigger than a fleck of sugar. It's not that small. Well, in, 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 in terms of what we see in that number four photo, which is a wide angle of the container, which is steel nitrogen, so they don't contaminate it. And then there's a light, so you can see detail. And then there's this magnifying glass. It's even got a, you know, a kind of a trade number. You can buy it probably from Edmund Scientific. Uh, so it's it's it it's there to be transparent to the public, but you couldn't even get close enough to get a decent picture with your own phone. Uh, yeah, I mean it's inside glass, um, so and there's refraction. Hmm. It's, it's, I can't imagine. Well, I, I I think I would say this is a bait and switch. Again, they're I, they didn't set it up. Uh, they didn't set it up for people to be able to see really anything. <laughs> uh, its presence there is indicating that they brought this something back. But it's pretty... Uh, well, you have to trust them at every stage in the process. There's no transparency. So, all right. Um, I want to thank you m very much. By the way, uh, Andrew is, is going to do a painting for you. Okay. Okay. And I, right. uh, I I emailed Lisa and George, and they George brought you up a couple times during my stint on Tuesday night. So if you haven't gotten one, I think we're going to get an invitation very soon for Coast. Oh, that's nice. I appreciate it. Um, I, 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 I look forward to seeing how the museums on the mall handle 
the explosion of things that are going to become, quote, observable or worthy of museum mm-hmm. display post-disclosure. That's going to be fascinating. It certainly will. Well, Mr. Bassett, thank you so much. And again, you and Andrew need to talk because he says, my brush is poised. Thanks, Dick. Okay. Say goodnight. Hey, um, we've got about six minutes, to, no, no, well, no, well, like four minutes till the bottom of the hour. Let me give you some background on Charles Upton. This is really interesting. He is 75, an American Sufi Muslim, author of 20-plus books on metaphysics and spirituality, including works of spiritual psychology, metaphysical exegesis of mythopoiosis, Say that one on New Year's Eve real fast. And metaphysics and social criticism of poetry and on Islam. Protégé of the Beats, his first books of poetry were Panic Grass, published by Lawrence Sethergetty in his City Lights Pocket Poets series, and Time Rate, published by Don Allen's Four Seasons Foundation, his writing series. Uh, Charles was raised Catholic in an essentially pre-Vatican II church, participated in the spiritual revolution and peace movement of the 1960s and 70s, and the sanctity movement for Central American refugees in the 1980s, later becoming associated with the traditionalist perennialist school of comparative religion and metaphysics founded by René Guillon and then headed by Fritjof Schoen. In 1988, let me make sure we're not overdoing it on time here. In 1988, he converted to Islam and was received into the Nimatuhali Sufi order under Dr. Javad Narbakish. In the same year, he published Doorkeepers of the Heart, Versions of Rabbis with Threshold Books. And in 2010, death, he maintained his connection with Sufism by taking Bayat with a well-known Sisla of the Awe Tariga. In 2011, he published The Wars of Love and Other Poems through Sophie Perennis Publications. In 2013, he conceived the Covenants Initiative based on the groundbreaking work, The Covenants of the Prophet Muhammad with the Christians of the World. When we come back, you will meet him here on the other side of midnight. The other side of midnight.com. You're tuned in to listen to Richard C. Hudren and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast and provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the night before, the night before Christmas. Now, tomorrow night, Christmas Eve, we are going to have one incredibly splendiferous, amazing journey. Thousands, if not more, years in the past to the actual roots and origins of this thing which has become so transmogrified called the Christmas season. 
that's tomorrow night. Tonight, I've got Charles Upton with us, who's written an extraordinary number of books. I've uh, managed, I think, three, I think. I, if you count some of the ones I'm in, but I didn't write the whole thing. No, it's more like four or five. Anyway, uh, so 20 books is an incredible Herculean effort if you want to say something. So without further ado, Charles, come on down and say something. Well, hello, hello, everybody. Hello, folks. Um, uh, let's say the, the, the first thing that came to what you said uh, uh, in your conversation with your last guest, who was talking about going to the Smithsonian, seeing a little flake of God knows what, which is supposed to be it. Um, two things you said that, that, that really have to do with the theme of what I want to talk about tonight. One is the theme of bait and switch which is very much what I'm going to be talking about. Secondly, as you said, I entirely agree. Uh, these people, you know, who are telling us things about, you know, whatever, you know, related to the government, you know, these people, you have to trust them at every step of the way because there is no transparency. And this I think perfectly describes the so-called revelations about the existence of alien corpses and alien crashed alien ships all along. Uh, we have never seen them yet. And now that that amended so that we don't see them, we just get information about them, which means the people producing the information can tell us any damn thing they want. Uh, I don't think we are at the point where, where we can be sure that these things are real. There's a vast industry of creating rumors, reports, you know, uh, uh, planting stories, you know, that's been going on for generations, actually, um, to produce this belief in the public mind. Now, now, when you say this belief, you mean belief in UFOs, ETs, Things that go bump in the night well, with very large odds. We can't put all those things in the same in the same box, you know. Let's be a little more specific. There's no question that there is is a UFO phenomenon. Ah, okay, okay. These these things these things you know appear. You know, more and more people are seeing them. Everybody's got cell phones. That there are more and more videos coming forward. They're they're seen visually. They're seen on radar. They're seen with infrared sensors. Um, they land, they, leave, they live, leave physical traces, they have undoubtedly abducted people, and those stories are, are yes. you know, so many stories about that. This is definitely a real phenomenon, no question about that. Are they from other planets? Jacques Vallée, who to, to my mind is still the best ufologist, says likely not, because there are too many of them. I'm not quite sure how he makes the one connection to the other. Because, I mean, possibly millions of people have seen these things. If people were coming from other planets to here, you know, it, it would be more, more like an expedition here now and then. No, 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 no. Well, why, why, why? Remember Uhura in Star Trek? It's a big galaxy, Mr. Scott. A, you've got trillions of possible locales where tourists would be coming from. Yeah, and where they could go, too. Be, yeah, but if you want to say trillions, they, that they have trillions of destinations, so that knocks that well, out. Well, all right, all right. <clears throat> the idea okay. in the mainstream UFO literature is that really something? For decades, for decades, what I have been reading is kind of like the 1950s sci-fi uh, model that ex civilization A reaches out through whatever uh, scouts. Yeah military, scientific, whatever, and they encounter another civilization. And, yeah. and then, and that would imply very few uh, contacts historically or pre and post historically. Yeah. And, right. and it, it would not account for the numbers that we're definitely seeing. So that model was predicated on the idea that it's very hard to go from star to star. If in yeah. fact, it's incredibly easy because you take a hyper- dimensional technological Arthur yeah. Clarke route, then we obviously are seeing tourists. And what do we do with incredibly interesting sites on Earth? 
we bombard them with tourists. Suppose it's as easy to come here from Alpha Centauri as it is to go to Bryce Canyon. Yeah, uh, but uh, how do we know they're coming from other planets? There are, are other worlds that, that are, are well, coextensive but you, but, but with it, this world. But it's there not are other dimensions which are coextensive with, with our but it, but it's linear time world. Well, but it's yeah. not an either or. It can be of all of the above because remember, it could be all the, of the, above, the physics by but, which they you know, do this. Um, yeah, uh, the, the 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 thing is, you know, of course, the human race has been seeing these for thousands of years, you know, and the idea that they're coming from other planets is rather new. But anyway, well, hang on a second. Hang on. See, yeah. this is this is where our research comes in because the. Mainstream UFO model does not account for ancient, incredible, vast occupation of this solar system by an extraterrestrial race. Which that's, it, that's well, that's a very common idea. Which no, in our just... yeah, but an idea and having data is two damn different things. We've got forty years of data, which is being resolutely ignored, up until a few months ago, when NASA declared. <laughs> that they are opening an office at headquarters in Washington to look at techno-signatures, which is a fancy way of saying ruins, cities, ancient technology, whatever, whatever, right here in the solar system. Well, okay, to, to, look, to look for them is one thing. No, to look you at know? them. We already know they've got them in their files. How do you think we've done our research but on their files where we, and when I say we, it's a very large we around the planet become this cottage yeah. industry of people looking at NASA data for ruins and machines and all that, and an official acknowledgement. We live in a, in a society, a subsection in the United States of America, of a larger global society where unless an authority figure looks into the camera and says it's real, nobody wants to believe it. Well, nowadays, nobody believes the authority figures either, <laughs> But they would if they, because they believe in a whole bunch of other stuff. Well, yeah. belief is part of human tradition. It's only relatively recently that some things are beginning to be questioned. You know, I was born in an era where, you know, the, the Roswell era, where everybody kept their mouth shut because basically the government said, if, if you don't play along with this, it's a damn big desert. And yeah, they got away true. with it. So uh, uh, let's let let's go. You know, I'm, I, uh, let's start out the way you said you wanted to start out. How did I get into this? I'm, yes, I'm exactly. Ease into this and, and and give some context and background, and then instead of just throwing an assertion out, which I don't have all the data to back up right now, I'm going to co collect it a little bit more, and we'll we'll get there if we got time. We have so, plenty of time. Okay. So. You were going to ask me how I got into well, this. Given your back, well, given your background, starting with the Catholicism, I was a, I'm, a, I'm a Reformed Catholic too, and then looking at your other interests, the idea that you would wind up in ufology is just very intriguing, and I'd like to know the non-random walk that got you from growing up looking around and saying, well, I wonder how the world really works, to where you're now where you think you know a bit of how it really works, and part of it includes, you know, cover-up and deception. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to redefine deception in a moment. But okay. basically, um, well, I, you know, going through the hippie counterculture, one of the themes, there were so many themes that were thrown out all at the same time and energized by LSD. <laughs> Which was, you know, which was, of course, given to us by the CIA because they just wanted to see what would happen, you know. So, um, basically, th there was the myth of the Space Brothers. You know, generally, the, the hippies looked at, at the UFO aliens as, um, as benevolent and, um, you know, that they believed in the Galactic Council or, or, or the Galactic Federation or whatever they want to call it. Well, that's because that, that, that a lot was, of the 1950s contactees like Adamski and yeah. Williamson and others, that's what they wrote in their books. That's what they said. The Space Brothers yeah, right. are here and, and to keep so, us from... So that, I, I got it through the hippie counterculture. Ah, okay. So was that. And um, 
then, well, so that that's that's one of the things I followed away. Says I wonder what that's all about, you know. Then uh, some years after that, after the hippie era, uh, I did a retreat on Mount Shasta in California. Okay. Because I'm I'm in Kentucky right now, uh, but I grew up in Marin County, California. So, uh-huh. so uh, Sh- you know, Shasta was known as the big sacred mountain of you know of perhaps of the whole West Coast, but certainly in California. So I went up there and, uh, you know, I ate only brown rice for three days and, and I took a vow of silence, which for me is, is quite quite rigorous. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was, um, that's, that's when I had my first lucid dream where I woke up and saw that I was dreaming. Interesting. And then I was meditating at dusk, looking out, over this beautiful, huge range of mountain after range after range, far into the distance, and it was twilight, and uh, I was meditating with my eyes open, which I used to do then, and uh, I saw, I went into a light trance, which is just, you know, deeper relaxation, you know, I started to trance out, and I saw these two extremely precise dots of light crossing the sky. And I see, you know, and they looked, they looked realer or, or like they were, they were more defined than most objects you see. I said, what are those things? And so I shook myself and I came back to a more waking consciousness and they disappeared. Hmm. I said, well, that's interesting. So I, I sat there still with my eyes open, went back into my little meditative crafts. And as soon as I got into a, a different and altered state of consciousness, they appeared again. Oh, so I'm saying, well, well, they're really out there, but they depend upon, you know, how my consciousness is tuned as to whether or not I see them. So that gave me my first sense of the kind of things that the UFOs are. A non-traditional physics. Well, it's, it's a, a different ontological plane. It's what, you know, uh, some people, the theosophists and others will call the etheric plane. Look at it like this. Uh, what you see and experience through your five senses, you know, touch, taste, sight, hearing, that defines what we call the physical world, right? We've got, you know, you can see it, you can, you know, I'm knocking on my table now. I'm look <laughs> that's, that's that reality. Then, we all know that. Then there's a reality uh, that we encounter in dreams or the reality we encounter just in, in mental imagery. You close your mind, you imagine something. Or, you know, you go to sleep and you have a dream. Well, that's clearly another kind of reality. Now, what the etheric plane is, it exists between those two. It's subtler than the physical, but it's more gross, if you will, than than the dream state, than the imaginal. And uh, so, so it's, it's, it's like a subtle material dimension or a quasi-material dimension. Now, later on, becoming a Sufi and a Muslim, you, we encounter, I encountered the uh, lore of the jinn. <clears throat> the jinn are the beings, pretty much the same beings that the Western Europeans call the fairies. You know, the fairies are not celestial angels, nor are they, you know, mm-hmm. pigs and bears roaming around through the woods. They are somewhere in between. And um, basically, uh the jinn inhabit the etheric dimension, which means they have the power to materialize temporarily. Whether I was talking to one of my Sufi brothers or a couple of them a few days ago, and I said, okay, we agree that they can temporarily materialize, but can they create objects that, that will remain in, in, in physical reality? And my, my Sufi brother Yusuf said, oh yeah, when I was in Malaysia, you know, I, there, there was a Sufi family I knew, and they, they had a, uh, you know, uh, a bottle or something, and they say, in which there was a gin, and this gin had been passed down from generation to generation. Oh, well, maybe so, but, you know, but that they, they showed, you know, a Chris, one of those Malayan, wavy Malayan, super sharp swords or daggers. They said, oh, this was created by the gin. Well, maybe. Maybe they can materialize objects which will be stable in, in physical reality, 
but more often than not, what they can do is appear and disappear. You know, it's it's difficult for them to get here. It takes a lot of energy. They can materialize to the point where they appear on radar, but then they run out of that energy or they decide to go elsewhere and they, they go back to their proper dimension. You know, you could, you could take a fish, fish out of water and, 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 uh, you know, but it, it can't live out of water permanently. It has to go back to, to where it, to its own world, you know? So pretty much that is my view of what the UFO aliens are, you know, and in terms of technology. So, wait, wait. so, so am I to hear that it's very binary for you? You don't believe, that there are nuts and bolts, space vehicles or te- temporal vehicles, or I, I, I'm saying I, I would I would allow that that is possible, but I would say that when you look at the profile of, of how these beings operate, um, you know, appearing, disappearing, affecting people's psyches very profoundly, um, you, this this does not fulfill, you know, does, does not fit the, the the profile, the parameters of uh, physical reality. It fits the, the profile. Well, you mean physical reality, reality? Physical reality as we've been taught it, right? Well, as we experience it every day, and we know we generally know what's possible. You know, walking across the street. You know, w- wait yeah, till but people are very. What, I mean, what, just, just just our universal experience of a physical world. What people that's experience all, that's it, all I'm talking about. What people experience every day is not the full spectrum. No. Of, of, Beyond of, that, there's there there is the etheric plane, which is another a whole other world. Beyond that are higher worlds, which are angelic worlds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and it, it goes on up. Yeah, it's not. This isn't the whole thing, but it has it. The physical reality has its own, you know, definition. It is three dimensional. Time is unidirectional in this world. It can't be reversed. That's that's the definition of this world. If you're if you're talking about the reversibility of time, if you're talking about more than three dimensions, you're no longer talking about a physical world. You're beginning. To, to to define something well, closer to Well, I would to, I would argue I would argue the physical world operates under laws and just because yes. just because there are different laws for higher dimensions and their connection with this dimension doesn't mean they're not physical in that they cannot be experienced and they don't have predictive uh, mechanisms for things functioning. That's what well, I've been trying to figure out for the last 30 40 years with an extraordinary number of experiments that yield very positive, predictive results. Are you talking about experiments of, um, you know, group consciousness being applied? Well, that also is part of the spectrum. Because yeah. what I've discovered is that there is no real difference between consciousness and materiality. It's kind of like a perspective or a frequency or, again, multiple dimensions that are well, linked. They're, 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 ne- they're never found apart. You know, my, my my theory is this. I'm coming from the Quran. The Quran says, now that this is, is, is Allah speaking. He says, we will show them our signs on the horizons and in themselves till they are satisfied that this is the truth. Is it not enough for you that I am witness over all things? And what I take that to mean, signs on the horizons, the horizons is the outer world. Mm-hmm. Well, it can also be the future. Well, but that's not what it means in the crime. It's the outer world, you know, and the outer world and the inner world of the psyche and in yourself. And it's essentially saying the creation, source, or God is, uh, God is the source of both worlds simultaneously. Consciousness does not create matter. Matter does not create consciousness. You know, if you say matter creates consciousness, you say, well, we live in a mechanistic, you know, universe and consciousness is simply an epiphenomenon of matter. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing but a complex biological computer. Well, it matter, it ma- I mean, you some know, models, matter is, is, you know, the carrier wave, the, the, the vessel of a higher order information energy. Well, yeah, that, that's that, that that's that is true too, but the higher the higher order of information, um, in, in other words, real events don't 
they don't start in the outer world and then affect me, or they start in my mind and I affect the outer world. They occur in outer world and inner world simultaneously. That's that's what Jung's synchronicity was all about. And actually, synchronicity is happening all the time. We just don't usually notice it because it's hard to put our attention equally on outer world and our inner consciousness. But if we could, we would see there's no... Whatever happens in the outer world is happening in me. Whatever is happening in me is happening in the outer world. Which means they're both made of the same stuff, and that's where we come into harmonics and resonance, resonance, okay. resonance yeah, I mean, that, nodes. Like, to me, I the whole I idea. With that. No, whole, I, I don't. I. That's not my area of expertise. But I, I'm. I'm confident that harmonics could certainly say something about that. What I'm saying is, uh, we are not magically creating the world around us. The world is created by God right now, as we are, as is our consciousness right now. And it, it is created in a polarized form of subject and object, which is why, you know, we, we can differentiate, at least to begin with, consciousness from the material object it's viewing, you know. But in a larger sense, they're part of the same matrix, you know, because they're, they're part of the same divine act. So at some point, <clears throat> this philosophical perspective, your conversion, the Koran, and UFOs crossed paths, was it in this experience at Mount Shasta? Well, I wasn't yet a Muslim, but you know... Because let me ask this I, question. You, you, I think that... You, you emphasized yeah. twice that you were meditating with your eyes open. Did, yeah. you, did you try seeing these guys with your eyes closed? No. Well, that would have been an interesting test because well, that it, would have it, been it, it, interior yeah, versus a lot exterior. Of I could have done at that point, See, what I would think is the way the, the reason that coming out of trance, they went away, and then going back in, you could see them again. It's about frequency matching. Yeah, they were physically agree. here, tracking across the sky, but you could not see them unless your frequency was matching the signal. Yeah, and I would say the frequency that matched that signal uh, defines the etheric plane, not the physical plane. Yeah, but see, to, to me, it's all part of the continuum. That's why we call it hyper-dimensional physics. Yeah, it's a continuum, but, but there are discrete borders, you know. Well, they're kind of like tunneling in quantum physics. They're leaky. They're not implacable, you know. No, they're, well, you can cross them. Yeah. Yes, yes, you, you, can, you can literally communicate information between dimensions. I know because I've been conducting several experiments in that vein. That's why when I saw your name, I said, I've got to get him. And here you are. Okay. So well, let's anyways, go back to so, the UFO so, thing. So, how did I get into UFO? Well, that's, well that's... And not just in UFOs, because most people, when they say UFOs, they say, okay, lights in the sky, things, yeah. they, things they read in popular media. You got, at <clears throat> some point, into UFOs at the level that I'm trying to do it, which well, is, why, what the why heck did is I it? get so interested? Is it an yeah. interesting question? Well, um, yeah, that's why, well, I'm, well, that's actually, why we're here. I'm remembering, I'm remembering, the, uh, uh, I'm remembering this stuff because I just finished writing my autobiography, which is 460 pages. Oh, my pages. God, what a, t what a, what a job. Um, wait, wait, I, 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 was, I was at a... Uh, a Uf UFO soiree led by uh, poet poetess and spiritualist Helen Luster in San Rafael, California. And uh, she's a lady who later became Allen Ginsberg's private secretary at Naropa Institute, oh. now in Naropa University, uh, the, the Buddhist university in Colorado, Boulder, Colorado. And uh, so, uh, so what year roughly was this? Um, when that, that was like late, late seventies. Oh, okay. Yeah. Somewhere like, you know, like 78, 79, something like that. But, um, so, uh, so anyway, uh, she played us some tapes of a, a lecture by Jacques Vallée and I said, oh, th this guy, extremely interesting what he's talking about. Um, and, um. So anyway, because of that, years later, did you read Messengers of Deception? Exactly. That's <laughs> what I'm getting to. 
Jacques and I, Jacques and I are old friends. I'm trying to get him on the show because he's done some amazing new work. I haven't touched uh, touched yeah, face I, I, for years. I wish, I wish he, would, he would go back to some of the suggestions he brought forward in that book and develop them a bit. For more. those but, people that have no idea what we're talking about, limb out Jacques' arch overview of the UFO phenomenon from perspective of that book. Yeah, th- th- that book really, really affected me. I, but I found it because years later, my wife Jenny was browsing in a bookstore, I think in Larkspur, uh, Marin County, and uh, she found that book. She brought it back, and I said, "What? You know th- that?" So I-, I saw how much social engineering and you know mass mind control was involved in the UFO phenomenon. On the hang on, hang on, on the part of someone or separate someones. Yeah, p- p- people with with you know military ranks and people associated with uh, intelligence. Community. So you're looking at the controllers like as strictly Earth people as opposed to the phenomenon itself. Because uh, I, 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 I thought that I thought Valet. There is undoubtedly deception coming from the phenomenon itself, but I'm just talking about the human half of it. Okay, well, say for people that don't follow this stuff, we need to parse out what we mean about deception, because apparently it's going on at all levels. Oh, incredibly so. Um, we're we're living in an engineered control system right now. Well, maybe, I mean, maybe. I... It's 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 amazing. If it, if it, uh, Charles, if it were seamless and controlled, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So something well, is not working at 100% efficiency to keep us from knowing no, and, and, who we are. And, and that's our... Can, but but they're, they're, they're getting pretty much what they want. You know, that's what I think. And uh, how long is your say, horizon? I, I hang on, hang on, hang on. How long... Ha- Charles, Charles, oh. Charles, conversation. Yes, yes. How long is your horizon? Because this bill isn't even signed yet. My model says that things will unfold uncontrollably by the terrestrial controllers rate over the next year. Yeah, and, and I am saying that this bill is authored by and is the perfect expression of the intent of the celestial controllers. That's okay. what I think the real deception is. Existence of celestial controllers. So let's go well, back I mean, to be. Hang on, hang on. We are literally. We are literally controllers operating on under uh, the tutelage and inspiration of fairly beings from the gen world. Higher dimensional forces. Yeah. If you okay. Will. All right. We are at the uh, top of the hour. My guest this morning is Charles Upton. We have barely gotten into this amazing potential for fascinating, catastrophic. Uh, mindsets that may be a little different than those that we have brought to this phenomenology before. So on that note, um, let me let, let's take a small break here so that we can in fact rejoin my uh, guest of the morning, Charles Upton, as we peruse the idea that maybe there are folks up there, out there, over there, that do not have our best interests at heart. There's a hierarchy. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. 
As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.